Good morning, church. There's not many days throughout the year that we get to bask in the victory that's been secured for us by our Savior, Jesus Christ. But today, indeed, is one of those days. A beautiful, glorious truth, a beautiful reality. Jesus has risen from the dead. He lives, and because he lives, we too will also live with him. We can bask in that victory. Our memory verse this month, appropriately for the month of April, is attached to the text of Scripture that we'll be studying today as a congregation. It's in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 25, verse 8. We can say it together as a congregation this morning. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Always forget at the end. Always forget. That's just part of the aging process, I think. There's another thing that I woke up this morning struggling with, and uh, a few times throughout the year in uh, my mortal body here that I have right now, I struggle with arthritis. And so as you would might imagine of all days on Sunday morning this morning, I woke up in quite a bit of pain. And I thought, how ironic. We're talking today about getting new bodies. <laughs> and many of you are very quick to remind me it doesn't get any better from this point on. <laughs> Thanks for that reminder. There's <laughs> nothing a few Tylenol can't help with. We have been taking time throughout the last year uh, together in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been studying that book section by section, and it just so happened as, as designed that we land at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today as a congregation. And Paul is doing so very much in this portion of his letter. We've shared at the very beginning when we broke open chapter 15, we shared that perhaps this is one of the most theologically deep and rich chapters in all of the Bible. And Paul, at the beginning of chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there, we're going to just take a quick trip through chapter 15. At the beginning, he set out to unite us in the matters of first priority. You remember we spent time talking about what Paul considered to be the standard test for Christian orthodoxy in the church. We see this in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 15. In these verses, the concepts of resurrection, new creation, and new community come front and center as Paul stirs our imaginations with the possibilities of resurrection. But as Paul is writing this particular portion of his letter, he knows that this concept of resurrection, someone physically and bodily raising from the dead, is going to be unfathomable, even utterly shocking to the people that he is writing to. Christianity was born in a time and space where the idea of physical and bodily resurrection from the dead was an utter impossibility. 
it did not happen in their minds. And so as he continues in chapter 15 in verses 12 to 19, Paul actually entertains the objections to his bold claim of resurrection. He moves the church back to the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection, showing them how Jesus' resurrection undoes the failures of Adam. Then in verses 20 to 28, Paul introduces us to a Messiah who, in the end, will deliver a kingdom to God the Father in order that God may be perfectly glorified and worshipped as all in all. And a proper understanding of all of these realities necessarily informs our ethics or the way that we live, move, and have agency in this world that we currently inhabit. This is Paul's argument starting in verses 29 to 34 as he shows us how the resurrection has informed the patterns and habits of his own life and the lives of many of the other early church leaders. Paul does this often throughout his letters. He shows the people how uh, what he is teaching has changed the patterns of his own life. And then, after doing that, he challenges the church to follow in his example and the example of Christ and to change the patterns and habits of their own lives. And so he continues in verses 35 to 49. And Paul uses many common illustrations to examine the particular dynamic realities that are connected to the resurrection. Paul is intentional. He's using language that moves our minds back into the garden. What fell apart in Eden long ago propelled us towards restoration in the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of our future resurrection. The resurrection reality fuels the church, propelling God's right-making work in this world. We who are in Christ were and are currently imaging the man of dust. Adam's failure describes and defines us all. We reflected on this just a few evenings ago on Good Friday. But now, but now, with glorious hope, We image the man of heaven, the one who inhabits us, who renovates and reforms each and every one of us into his image. With all of this in view, we step into verses 50 to 58, where Paul is drawing to a conclusion his thoughts on the resurrection as he writes to the earliest Christians gathered in the ancient city of Corinth. And in these verses today... Paul is going to bring us back to two enormous claims that flow off the coattails of the resurrection. These are claims that were true then, they are true now, and they will be true for eternity. Claims that should inform the patterns and the habits of all who claim the name of Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. The example of Jesus' life is an example for us to image. The power at work within Jesus, that same power that raised him from the dead, is now alive, active, and at work within us. His life secures our life. Resurrection begets resurrection. 
And as Paul victoriously proclaims in the text we're going to read today, the dead are raised. Death is defeated. And then the conclusion in verse 58. Therefore, live in this way. So let's step into our text this morning and explore these glorious truths together. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58. Before we read, let's pray. Father, it is a glorious day. Every day can be this glorious. Because we live in light of the reality of a risen Savior. Your Son came. He took our sins. He went to the cross. He died. He was put in the tomb. But death could not hold him. He rose. And his resurrection was victory. And his victory means victory for us. All who claim the name of Jesus today, Father, will rise. And that is a glorious truth that we can grab hold of and live with every day of our lives. It's why, Father, you can cause us to live with such hope in a world that exudes hopelessness. It's why, Father, that you can cause us to live with such security in a world that seems so insecure. You've granted us victory through your son, Jesus. And in that victory, we can stand. We ask for your help. We plead for your help. We need your help to do this, Father. We cannot do it on our own strength or effort. Your, your son and your spirit must be with us in every minute, in every endeavor, in every place that you take us in this world you have planted us in. Help our text today motivate us to stand strong, to endure, and to shine as lights in the world that you've placed us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 58. Now, this is what I am saying, brothers and sisters. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the blinking of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Now when this perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will happen, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death? is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, dear brothers and sisters, be firm. Do not be moved. Always be outstanding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor 
is not in vain in the Lord. The dead are raised in verses 50 to 53. Friends, we have been promised a magnificent inheritance. The kingdom of Jesus will one the kingdom that Jesus will one day deliver in its fullness to the Father is a kingdom that will be made up of those of us who are imperishable. As Paul states in verse 50, that which perishes cannot inherit that which is imperishable. We gather today living a reality that will one day be foreign to us. Today we are perishable. One day we will be imperishable. These bodies, the bodies that I have, that I live in right now, as I explained this morning with arthritis and many of us in here with our varying degrees of problems and difficulties that we've had, these bodies, they're decaying. We are in the process of decaying. One day, one day, we will inhabit physical bodies, ones that resemble the current bodies we are now in, but are different because they are unable to perish or waste away. As Jesus was raised with the scars of his earthly ministry still visible on his body, so too shall we be raised with bodies bearing the scars of our time on earth. Yet our bodies will be different because they will be whole and complete, free from decay and the effects of death. Now, in this text this morning, Paul does not pretend to understand how all of this is going to work. Rather, in verse 51, he tells us that he is describing a mystery. A mystery. There will be some of us, hopefully many of us here today, that will be alive at Jesus' second coming. I know many of you have told me you believe it soon. That's a good way to live. We can live like he'll return at any moment. And we heard a few weeks ago from one of our guest pastors that was here uh, preaching to us that nothing else needs to happen. The time could be at any moment. And won't that be exciting? Those who are alive at Jesus' second coming will receive new bodies. Almost instantaneously, as Paul describes it in verse 52, he compares it to the twinkling or the blink of an eye. How fast does that happen? Others who have already passed on or fallen asleep in the Lord will be united with new eternal bodies. But all of us, as Paul repeats twice in verses 51 and 52, all of us, everyone here, will be changed. And isn't it amazing? Just as the first horn of God in the Bible, found in Exodus chapter 19, it was used to gather a people together to establish and form a nation that was to inherit a promised land or kingdom. So too will the last trumpet gather a people together to inherit an eternal kingdom. We do not pretend to understand the dynamics of this all. Rather, Paul sums it up succinctly in verse 53. Does he not? Take a look down there. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. What we must understand and what we must grasp regarding the mystery is 
that the way we currently are is not the same way that we will one day be. Currently, death and decay, they're able to consume our physical bodies. One day, the physical body that we have will not be able to be touched by either decay or death. For those two agents will be no more. Resurrection is a mystery. It's part of our heritage that we've received by faith. Physical and bodily resurrection from the dead is one of the core tenets that actually sets Christianity apart from almost every other religion and worldview. With this, we find that Christianity presents a worldview that's it's not above scientific scrutiny or rational thought. For even Thomas, the disciple of Jesus, said himself, what? I will not believe unless I what? See. Rather than perceiving the Christian worldview as being above question or scrutiny, it may be more helpful for us to perceive the Christ-centered perspective of the world as one that once scrutinized goes beyond what is questioned and once thought rationalized transcends the boundaries of even the most logical of thought. In discovering more, I don't know if you've found this to be true, but I certainly have as it relates to my spiritual walk. In discovering more, we find we can never discover enough. In knowing more, we can never know fully yet. Yet. One day we will. Today is not yet that day. A core tenet of our faith, resurrection of the dead, it calls us to consider that there is a God who is not bound to work within the natural order of things as they are today. Rather, resurrection calls us to consider a God of the impossible, a God that creates out of nothing. A God that can restore, that can redeem, that can resurrect in supernatural ways according to His divine purposes in the world which we live. A God who's able to transform our present bodies and this present world at the final resurrection in ways that are incomprehensible to our currently fragile and perishable human minds. I can't fathom it. I can't fully understand it or grasp it. But you ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Jesus said to Thomas, Do you believe because you have seen me? Blessed are the ones who have believed without seeing. Jesus has risen from the dead physically and bodily. We too will one day rise from the dead physically and bodily. Blessed is the one who believes and lives as though the defeat of death is a reality. Paul moves to his second enormous claim. Death is defeated. The old will be made new. Paul describes it in this way. Look again at verses 54 and 55. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? Paul draws from two Old Testament texts here 
In his quotes at the end of verses 54, then verse 55, he's referencing a quote from our memory verse this month, one that we already said at the beginning of our time together today. The day has come and is coming when death will be swallowed up in victory. The initial foretaste of this victory was recognized when Jesus rose from the grave. The final satisfaction of this victory will be when all are physically raised to immortality. In that day, friends, our reproach is no more as we stand innocent before God because of the payment of Jesus' blood, His life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. Because He lives, we too will live. His perfection laid upon us, covering our reproach, making us right before the God who is perfectly holy. We will physically stand. Have you considered that? We will physically stand in the presence of perfect holiness. I can't fathom that moment. We could sit here all day and reflect on that reality. That one day the light will be so bright and our eyes will not be blinded and yet we will stand. And the only reason we will be able to stand is because of the victory secured by Christ and applied to us. Free to dwell in the physical presence of God for eternity. Wow. That's what is awaiting us. Now look again at verse 55. Paul is, again, we've, saw, we've seen this throughout his letter to the Corinthian church. Throughout this letter, he has leaned expansively into the Old Testament and drawn from the Old Testament, often even pulling out curious quotes. And here, a curious quote from the prophet Hosea. Now, if you have your devices or you have your Bibles, you're going to want to turn and see this because this is very interesting what Paul does here. The book of Hosea, it's in the Old Testament. It's in chapter 13, verse 14. One of the minor prophets, it's a little book. Sorry that the Old Testament books aren't in alphabetical order. It'd be a lot easier. Hosea, chapter 13 in the Old Testament. Paul's drawing from this text. This is what it says in verse 14. Hosea 13, verse 14. I want you to see this because this is very interesting what Paul's doing here. Here it is in context or as it exists in the book of Hosea, the minor prophet. It says this. Will I deliver them from the power of shale? No, I will not. Will I redeem them from death? No, I will not. O oh, death, bring on your plagues. O oh, shale, bring on your destruction. My eyes will not show compassion. I don't know if you're Version has it, but my version has it to show the intensity of this prophecy. There's exclamation marks after each of the lines. And in this passage of Hosea, the prophet is forthtelling about Israel's soon coming judgment. 
because of their idolatry and unfaithfulness, God would not deliver them from the power of Sheol, nor would He redeem them from death. Instead, what happens? The prophet actually personifies death and Sheol as God invites them to oppress and overtake the northern empire of Israel. O oh, death, bring on your plagues. O oh, Sheol, bring on your destruction. The last line of verse 14 in Hebrew literally reads like this. Compassion will not be hidden from my eyes. That was then. Paul is writing in the now. And in the now, Messiah has come. And he has come victoriously, accomplishing all that he was given to do as a part of his earthly ministry. So, in a twinkle of rhetorical artistry that's filled with irony, Paul takes an Old Testament passage that was given in judgment and he flips its exclamations into questions that invite us to recognize the victory of Jesus. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because of Jesus... Words that were once spoken to invite agents of death and shale to render judgment and condemnation are now spoken as renovated and reclaimed words that antagonize and reveal as powerless those very same agents. Death once had power. Shale once had sting. Paul is saying, where are they? Where are they? What changed? What changed? The Deliverer and the Redeemer, Christ, had come in person, in the person of Jesus. The time of sin, decay, and death is over and will soon be over for eternity. God's compassion is clearly demonstrated eternally in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, Paul concludes in verses 56 and 57, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death's sting is pacified, Sin's power is broken by the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. The God who once invited the forces of sin and death to bring judgment upon his people now is thanked as the one who's given us the victory over sin and death through Jesus. And what Paul does here at the end of verse 57, back in 1 Corinthians 15, is incredibly significant and should not be overlooked by the church today. From the beginning of his letter, Paul has called the church to unity. He has examined with the church all of the issues existing in their world that threaten to divide them. Do we have any issues in our world today that threaten to divide us? 
Some of us know of a few. We've seen and we've studied from the beginning of the letter how Paul keeps bringing us back to unity, unity, unity in Christ. In Christ. And this is how he does this here in chapter 15 at the end of verse 57. Four words. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Is unity in Christ able to hold the church together? And here again, with similar language, we're reminded that it is Jesus who is the church's ultimate place and person of unity. We find our unity in Christ alone. One scholar has put it this way. He said, quote, Those four words, our Lord Jesus Christ, can cause all problems discussed in this letter to disappear. The Corinthian divisions will disappear. Their community-destroying sexual irregularities will stop. Their offenses to the consciences of others will come to an end. Their worship wars will finally be over. And their denials of the resurrection will be no more. The resurrected Jesus is our Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. So two questions, church, of enormous significance for us to consider today. Do we believe that our Lord Jesus Christ is enough to hold us together in the world God has planted us in? And if we answer affirmatively, are we currently living with one another in a matter that proclaims he's enough? There is quite a bit in our world today that threatens to divide the church. There's political realities. There are social realities, philosophical realities, where we live, where we work, the context in which we choose to educate our children, theological particularities, doctrinal differences, who we read, what we read, where we get our news. Don't come talking to me about that stuff. Because I'm telling you, I'm going to ask you the question, where did you get that? What we watch, who or what we listen to, the list could go on and on and on. And we would be naive to believe that Satan would want this any other way. When the church is consumed with judgment and consuming one another, it is easily distracted from the mission and the victory that Jesus gave her. Will we live by faith? Will we live by faith that despite our differences, our agreement on our Lord Jesus Christ will be enough to hold us together? Pray that we will. In God's word, we are instructed that everyone who is in Christ Jesus is called a new creation. It's not 
everyone who is in Christ Jesus and agrees with me. They're a new creation. That's not what it says. Everyone who is in Christ Jesus, everyone who is in Christ Jesus has been given the victory over sin and death. Everyone who is in Christ Jesus has been declared right before God. Everyone who is in Christ Jesus has been given gifts called into a community of faith and invited to live out their faith in a matter that glorifies God. Everyone who is in Christ shares these realities in common. Jesus fully saves everyone who calls upon His name. It's not you have to call upon His name and then believe about this, this, and this the right way and then you might be saved. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and calls upon His name will be saved, period. And all, isn't it amazing? This is what the Bible does, this unity. All who call on the name of the Lord share the same. The Bible tells us one Lord, one faith, one baptism that belongs to all of us to share. We were at Intercourse Park last night. I didn't know if I was going to share this, but it fits. We were at Intercourse Park last night with a number of Haitian families from our community enjoying a picnic, having a fun time of fellowship. About half the people there were speaking English, half were speaking Creole. We were having a wonderful time. And then it started to rain. And guess what happened? We moved inside. Inside that pavilion. Many of you know that pavilion. We've had church gatherings there. The guitars came out. The speakers were turned on. And guess what we did? We worshiped the Lord. And as I sat there, I thought to myself, see, I, have, I was under the impression at one time in my life that perhaps in heaven there'd just be one language. But as I sat there and as I was reflecting on verses that we've been exploring together as a congregation, every nation, tribe, language, and people. Half the songs I could sing. Half the songs I couldn't. I, I, I knew the tunes. I didn't know the words. Bonjour. That's God. That's about as far as I go right now. <laughs> Jesse. There you go. You could guess what Jesse is. Jesus. Right? I thought there for a moment, sitting there with all these other families surrounding us, perhaps the reality in heaven is that every language will be present and I will have a perfect knowledge of everyone. And how beautiful, how glorious will that reality be? And then it struck me that across the world today, there will be millions of Christians from every nation tribe, language, and people group in the world, and they are proclaiming the same message that we are today. Christ is risen. And the question remained on my heart, is that victorious and resurrected Messiah enough to hold us together? 
I believe he is, church. I believe he needs to be for the church to shine as lights and to function as the salt that we have been called to be in the world today. Throughout the letter, Paul's called this church to unity in Christ, to be compelled by the example of Jesus. And when the pains of this world threaten to divide, we are to hold fast, to cling to the victory that we've been given in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so appropriately, this phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ, serves as a bridge to verse 58, which is Paul's great So what at the end of this chapter? All of this talk about the resurrection and the realities in regards to the resurrection. How are we to live in light of it? How should we live in light of the resurrection? The answer is in verse 58. This is where Paul shows us how our future hope collides with our present significance. As he speaks to the entire Christian community gathered in Corinth, his final words in this portion of his letter are this, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved sisters and brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In light of the victory that we've been given in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is how we should live. Paul says, be steadfast. Be firm about this victory. Don't waver. There are many around us, and I'm sure many of you work with and live with and are in neighborhoods with those around us who question the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Maybe we work with them. Maybe we go to school with them. Paul says, do not be moved. Throughout the course of our lives, perhaps some of you have been in the faith long enough to see some fall away. Some who believed so, what seemed like so sincerely, but over the years as trauma comes, as pain comes, as grief comes, or excitement and opportunity They're pulled away. They stop believing in resurrection. Paul says, you don't move, church. If we hold fast to anything that matters in the world, hold fast to our Lord Jesus Christ and the victory He has won with us through the resurrection. Holding on to the truth and hope of the resurrection gives the church life and vitality helping us to thrive as salt and light in the world that God has planted us in today. It's the very world, by the way, friends, that He has called us to go out and reach with the good news. This very same world. We have been planted with purpose. With purpose. Go. Share. Love. Someone says... But my friends, my professors, my parents, my siblings, my boss, they don't believe this stuff. And Paul wants the church to find solidarity in their immovable and steadfast proclamation that Jesus is risen from the dead. Some won't believe. We won't be able to convince them. 
perhaps with our words, perhaps with our lives. But we must live as though we believe it ourselves. We are to stand with the victor, to be found in union with the one who was risen, to not be conformed by the thinking of this world, but to be transformed by a mind that is set on Christ. We function as a community that is fully convinced that through his earthly ministry, Jesus accomplished exactly what God had set out for him to do. And living this way, friends, gives us great hope to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. What we do, we do is motivated by Christ's example and compelled by Christ's love. We work in solidarity with Jesus. Jesus came to make God known. He ascended into the heaven and he called his disciples to carry on his work. This is what we do today. Our work today is the work of making God known. Walking by faith, sharing our faith, abounding with hope in hopeless times, laying down our lives, living as salt and light, shining like stars for the glory of God. We live to make him known to others and living on mission according to his divine purpose for our lives pleases God, our heavenly father. Friends, I have to admit to you, this has been a very wearisome and burdensome season to live with hope. Has it not? Hard. It's hard. Sometimes we grow weary. The burden is heavy. Our endurance begins to fade. Paul understood this. He knew of this feeling himself. So he ends the chapter with an encouragement for us to keep on going. Verse 58, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, I've needed to hear this the past number of months, years. Perhaps you need to hear this today as well. When the days grow long and all hope seems lost and we feel down and discouraged and we wonder what in the world are we doing? Is God even accomplishing anything through us? We need to be reminded that when we are laboring in the Lord, our labor is never in vain. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. We never know how Jesus might be using us to draw someone else closer to God. The word that you say, the encouragement that you give, the way that you live your life out in your community. One day we will inherit an eternal kingdom where all of the dead who are raised and clothed with imperishable bodies will worship and glorify God as all in all. A kingdom where sin and death will not exist. And while we wait, while we wait for that day, why not practice today the principles, patterns, attitudes, habits, and behaviors that will one day come to define our eternal existence? As our team comes... Let's pray. Father, indeed, it is because you live that we are able to face tomorrow. It is because you live that the fear and the anxiety that can so readily consume us can be gone. 
It is because you live that we are able to love others in supernatural ways even when that love is not reciprocated. It's because you live that we are able to look to the cross and look to the tomb, laying down our lives for one another and living with the hopeful reality that this life we live today is not the best life that you have in store for us. You've given us a great hope. You've given us a great treasure and you've given us a great victory in your son Jesus. Let his life help us face what will come tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.